Welcome, everybody. I am Rachel Levy-Lesser. And I am Stephanie Goldstein. And this is Life's Accessories, a podcast about accessories, clothing, fashion, and the stories behind them. We are two friends who love to accessorize and who remember what we wore on pretty much every meaningful occasion. And that is what we love to talk about. You can follow us on Instagram at Life Successories Podcast and also on Facebook. You can also email us at lifesaccessoriespodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or accessory suggestions. And if you like what you're listening to, we would love it for you to share this podcast with a friend and rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. Also, do not forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Today, listeners, we are very excited to be talking to Pam Moore. That's a good name, Pam Moore, isn't it? It is. It's very solid. I like it. I I like it. Pam is an occupational therapist turned intuitive eating coach and health and fitness journalist who lives in Boulder, Colorado. She lives there with her husband and two daughters. And as an intuitive eating coach, her mission is to help women stop micromanaging their food and exercise so they can start fully showing up to their lives. Okay. I am not a fan of micromanaging anything. So you don't want to be a micromanager. You nope. definitely don't want to be micromanaged. I mean, no. that's the worst. That is the worst. Pam is the author of There's No Room for Fear in a Burly Trailer. And Pam's writing has been published in the Washington Post, Runner's World, Self, The Guardian, Time. Oh my God, so many places outside AARP and Forbes, among others. That's I'm a I am a card carrying member now of AARP. That is true. I only have a few months left until they send me it. I'm excited. Despite or more likely because of being picked last for every team as a kid. I wasn't picked last, but I definitely was not picked first. Let's just say oh, that. I was at the back end of things. For yeah, sure. back. Absolutely. Medium to back. Yeah. yeah. Especially so, with like Red Rover. Oh, I know. Yes. God, my arms. That's the worst game. Oh. They probably don't play it anymore. It's probably dangerous. Probably not. It's probably banned. Yeah. <laughs> so Pam is also a certified personal trainer. Six-time marathoner. Take that, people who didn't pick her first. <laughs> And two-time Ironman finisher. That's incredible. Her podcast, Real Fit, features conversations with women athletes about body image, enoughness, and more. Pam's newsletter, Real Nourished, features evidence-based tools to reduce food-related anxiety, improve body image, and embrace exercise as a form of nourishment instead of punishment. I love that. I love that. I love that. That's absolutely the right way to look at it. And I can't wait to talk to her. I wonder what her accessory is going to be. I know. Hi, Pam. Welcome to Life's Accessories. Hi, Rachel and Stephanie. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you, Pam. And I have the honor of asking you the most important question of this podcast, which is, what accessory do you want to tell us about today? Today, I want to tell you about my specialized LA road bike that I got in 2003 and is now hanging in my garage with no pedals, but I can't let it go. (laughs) Well, this is our first bike. This is yeah. very exciting. We like it. A bike is an accessory, just exactly. so you know, listeners. For a woman who's like really into cycling, I, I think it would be hard to find somebody who would like rather receive jewelry as a gift than like a new fancy bike. Tell <laughs> us about the bike. You know, what is so special about it? Yeah. Give us the dish. Okay, yeah. I'll give you everything. <laughs> the bike uh, dish. I could probably tell you for like an hour how I got the bike, so I'll try to keep it short. I got the bike in 2003. 
I had, let me back up. Okay. I had, I've never been athletic my whole life. I was like, you know, pick last for every team, dreaded gym class. I was a late bloomer. So I couldn't use the excuse of I have cramps until like 10th grade. So I would be like, can I pretend to have cramps? Will they find me out if I pretend to have my period? Like, how can I get out of gym? So it's not (laughs) athletic at all, but I started running in high school and actually liked it. At first I didn't like it, but then it grew on me. I liked it a lot. I ran a marathon when I was my first marathon. I think I must've been 22. Yeah. I just wanted to do it. And I kind of just wanted to see if I could. And so that was my first year of grad school. I kept running, but then I got some kind of like repetitive use injury. And I was like, all right, I'm going to have to find some low impact ways to work out. So I started swimming. I started going to spin class and I had it in the back of my head. I had met somebody through work who did triathlons and he was just a normal guy with a full-time job and a family. And up to then I had thought triathlon necessarily meant Ironman, which is very long and that it was like only for pros. But then I met him and I was like, oh, there's shorter triathlons. And this is a regular person with a regular life. Maybe I could do a triathlon. So when it came time to think about getting a bike, because what I missed was being outside. Swimming, for the most part, is inside. Spin class was inside. I was like, what can I do that's outside? And I thought about getting a mountain bike because I don't know about now. I have not bought a mountain bike, but they're a lot cheaper than road bikes, or they were at the time. But I was like, I'm going to spend a little extra money and get a road bike because if I'm ever going to do a triathlon that's what makes sense. And for your listeners who may not be at all familiar with cycling, the mountain bikes have thick knobby tires and they're meant for trails mm-hmm. and the road bikes have the skinny tires and they're meant for roads. So I, I was like, question? yeah, is a, road, is a road bike, like a hybrid bike. Is that what that is? No. Okay. The hybrid, hybrid bike is okay, characterized sorry. by like handlebars that look like mountain bike handlebars because right. they're a little higher yeah. and they're straight. Whereas the road bike handlebars, like if you ever watched the tour de France, yeah, it's the handlebars that are lower. So you're more of like an aerodynamic position and they're curved. Does that sound got it? Are you you clipping into this thing? That's what I want to know. All right. So like that 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 whole concept terrifies me. Because how do you get out? What do you do? How do you stop? It's actually (laughs) it's very intimidating to begin with, but it's not hard at all. You take your heel and you I'm trying to think of like what ballet position it resembles. And Matt, you ever do like a bar class and they tell you like up and inch down your toes? Yeah. Yeah. So you're making a V with your toes and your heels are like the base of a triangle. Yeah. Yeah. That's the motion that you're making. You're just flipping your heel out and it should unclip very easily. So you're breaking. And then when you come to a complete stop, you lean over a little bit and put your foot down on the ground. Oh my God. I'm having PTSD from the first time I clipped into the Peloton during COVID. I was stuck there. I had to text my husband from upstairs to come down and help me out. I was like, I'm going to break my ankle. Right. That was painful for me. I I have clipped into a Peloton bike and they can be really tight. I will say that's not normal. Yeah. Like there should be an adjustment on there. But when I started clipping in, I think I did it with a friend on grass. We went to a field and we also did a thing where he basically supported my bike. He faced me and stuck the front wheel of my bike between his legs and stood like a foot away from me and just held the bike steady while I just practiced staying still. So that's a good way to practice. So I got the road bike thinking maybe someday I'll do a triathlon, but I, I want to try that. But it was, it was a huge leap of faith because I was 23 years old, I think. And I was not making very much money and the bike cost a thousand dollars. I don't know if I was saving for anything. I was not very good with money. So a thousand dollars seemed like a huge amount of money Mm -hmm. to spend on something that would be fun. But I was like, will this even be fun? I'm terrified of cars. I haven't ridden a bike outdoors in like 10 years or more. This 
might be crazy, but I did it. I have a tax return and I was like, all right, it's going toward the bike. And I got the bike and I became in love with cycling within like weeks. Once I got over some of the fear, actually it took a while to get over the fear. We can talk about that if you want, because it is scary at first to ride near cars. And this was even back before everyone was texting. You know, we had like flip phones back then. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, that's That's when people paid attention when they drove. To some extent. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or you have other cyclists like me on the road, you know, with the basket on the front. That's the bike I I have. Nothing is wrong with that. I have one of those too. Yeah, Stephanie and I were thinking a little bit about our biking experiences. I mentioned the hybrid because I have the same hybrid bike that I actually got in 2001 when I was in grad school in the Midwest. And I rode it around, I should say, the college town. And I still use it, but like random weekends on a little towpath in my town. I'm scared of biking by cars, but I know what you mean about being outside. It's so much fun. It really is. And the things that you can see, and I feel like it's the perfect speed for seeing new things. You can see a lot more than walking, right? running. I mean, how far can you really run? You know, like driving's too fast. The bike is perfect. Switching gears a bit. Um, Can you- (laughs) Switching gears? Wow. I didn't even realize what I- did not even mean to do that. I didn't even mean to do that. That was amazing. That was- I think my work is done for the day. We're done here. Um, No, but (laughs) we're not. We're far from done. Can you talk to us about your work as an intuitive eating coach? And what does that mean? We read that you help women detach their weight from their worth. And how do you do that? That's, what got you into this? Yeah, let's see, a couple questions. So I'll start with what is intuitive eating? Intuitive eating is learning how to eat again without dieting, essentially. It's tuning back into your body's cues. It's relearning. I say relearning and not learning because we knew, I think, how to trust our bodies when we were children, most of us. You know, babies yes. and toddlers, when they're done, they're done and you know it. Yes. When they're hungry, they're hungry. It's a very like embodied experience. They're very in touch. Then we get a little older and we are told our bodies are wrong. Our appetites are wrong. Our desires are wrong. We should feel guilty. And if you start looking for it, you'll see it everywhere. Like you might be thinking, well, nobody actually told me that, but it's like, all right, well, what about beach body, for example? Like the idea being, let's get you ripped so you can look great at the beach. Like you can't look great in the body you have. Or you go to a restaurant and it's like the sinful chocolate cake is on the menu. Or I think it's wheat thins that are baked and not fried and they say they're guilt-free. Am I right? Yeah, Am I, uh, yeah. I could eat a whole box of wheat thins and I'm sorry to say I will feel a little guilty after that. That's fair. <laughs> I do love wheat thins. I'm still working on neutralizing them because... I don't know if I would eat a whole box, but there was a time in my life where I was like, I cannot have those around the house. And the intuitive eating approach to something like that would be, you know what? It's not that you're addicted to the food necessarily. It's that you've told yourself you can't have it. And that makes you want it all the more. And you can't Mm -hmm. separate the emotions and the charge of the feeling of it being off limits with your true appetites and your true idea of what would nourish me right now. So when you can give yourself full permission to eat the food, whether it's a wheat thin or ice cream or whatever you've told yourself is quote unquote bad. If you are like, I'm just going to give myself full permission to eat that food. Mm -hmm. Eventually the novelty will wear off. That is Mm. what happens for the overwhelming majority of people. The novelty wears off and you could have it around the house and you could take it or leave it. I actually wrote an essay for Insider about how I hide food, which is ironic because I think that seems on its face like a very disordered habit to hide food, but I do it because my husband is not, I don't know, I don't think he's an intuitive eater. He's somebody who if chocolate is around, he'll eat all of it. 
But I'm like, for my healing, I need to know that it's going to be there when I want it. So I hide it from him (laughs) and I can have a square or two at a time, but I need to like, know that it's there. If I feel like it's off limits somehow, or I can't have it, it's not good for me. And that was a two-parter right now. Yeah. How did you get into it? Because I had a bad relationship with food. I was not an intuitive eater to make a long story short, especially when I became a cyclist, because I could go ride my bike for three, four, five, six hours. And you get really hungry when you Mm -hmm. do that. I thought I had a good relationship with food. I thought, oh, I'm starving. So I'll just eat whatever. And that felt great. But then inevitably there will come a time in your life when you're injured or you're busy or it's winter for whatever reason, you're not riding your bike as much. And when that happened for me, suddenly I was going crazy about food. I had a lot of anxiety about what I quote unquote could or couldn't eat and realized the eating that I was doing when I was doing so much exercise that I thought I had food freedom. I didn't. I was using exercise to justify food. And what I realize now is exercise is over here in this one bucket and food is over here in this other bucket. I fuel so that I can perform and I want to recover well. But at the same time, if I want ice cream, it's okay to have ice cream no matter what I did or didn't do. I know that now. So intuitive eating really changed my life. I had a lot of anxiety before about food. I definitely thought about it too much. And now that I have a healthier relationship with food, I'm like, Ooh, I want to show other people how they can do this too, because your life just opens up when you're not thinking about food. And when you're actually eating, you can really be present with your friends and family and enjoying the food instead of doing the mental gymnastics of like, okay, wait, can I eat this? What did I already eat? What about tomorrow? That's so interesting that you brought up exercise and eating. Cause obviously if somebody says, just speaking anecdotally, oh, how'd you lose all that weight? Oh, I stopped eating so much and I exercise, you know, things like that. But it's interesting how you brought that up because you're sort of saying exercise is one thing, eating is one thing. And it doesn't mean, oh, I did an hour on the Stairmaster and I'm going to reward myself with the Big Mac ice cream. Oh, and a Diet Coke. Do you know what I mean? Like there's just so funny, so many funny like memes about that. And I wanted to bring it back a little bit because you mentioned your history with eating and we read in your bio that you were always picked last for the, the team. Yeah, we, we were, I wasn't last, but I was pretty close to last. We were in the bottom half. Yeah. Yeah. So can you take a little bit with our coffee? Can you tell us a little bit about, I guess I hate to use the word journey, but I'll say journeys. And have you always been interested in food and exercise? It's interesting that you ask that because I definitely was drawn to eating disorder memoirs when I was a teenager. I recall reading and maybe even rereading this book called Wasted by Maria Hornbacher. Do you know that book? I was thinking of the girl from Growing Pains, Tracy. Oh yeah. And the the movie- Yeah. 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 That's what I, that's what I'm thinking back. Very 1980s. Yeah. But she did have an eating disorder. Yeah. I was, and I remember just being really intrigued by it. I like look back at my younger self and I'm like, what? I volunteered at the women's center when I was in college and we had these, it was so long ago, but I remember doing this like peer education groups on body image. And I don't remember anything that we actually said or did, because this was graduated from college in 2000. It's been quite a while, but I look back and I'm like, wow, my body image was really jacked up. What was I sharing with these people? Did I get anything out of this? Did I recognize that I was trying to help people with body image when I had really bad issues myself at that time? I wish that I had documented any of that because I'm dying to like unearth it. I've always been interested. And then 
after college, I went to grad school to become an occupational therapist. So I've always worked with people. Some OTs do work in inpatient mental health. I've worked in outpatient mental health, but never specifically with people with eating disorders. I've always liked helping people solve problems. And then from there, you know, I moved to journalism, but now I feel like I'm coming back around because I still write. I write more about health and fitness topic and I get to have the one-on-one with people, which I love. Can you tell us about that switch? You started as an occupational therapist. So what brought you to what you're doing now and why? Yeah. In a nutshell, like if I had to (laughs) sum it up, like having kids and my husband in two words, because after I had my first child, I went back to work as an OT part-time. But then after I had my second child, you do the math and you look at the life stress required of going in. I was working at a hospital at the time. I was like, this isn't really adding up. And not to mention, I was pretty burnt out on healthcare in general. Healthcare has been changing and it was in a state of flux. And it just felt like I was asked to do more and be less creative. And the bottom line was getting more and more important. And I was being told like, okay, on post-op day one, you do this. And on post-op day two, you do this. And I'm like, geez, I have a master's degree. I didn't have all this education and I'm not in a professional career to be told the recipe for what I'm supposed to do with my patients. There was that. And then, and I had had a blog. I had started my blog in 2006 or seven, and I just enjoyed writing. And my husband really encouraged me to explore that. It was him. Oh, and are you familiar with the Listen to Your Mother show? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That might be one of the ways I connected with our mutual friend, Nina, also, because we had a Listen to Your Mother connection. But I co-produced the Boulder Listen to Your Mother show in 2013. I started that here, did it for three years. But by doing that, I connected with a lot of other women writers and started to see that saying, like, if you can see it, you can be it. I didn't know any writers before that, really. I didn't have a writing community. And when I saw these other women with actual careers in writing and publishing, I was like, oh, this is a thing. Maybe I could do this. So it was like a confluence of timing. And honestly, my husband has been my biggest cheerleader. He really pushed me to try writing. And I had a lot of confidence issues, a lot of imposter syndrome. And he was always like, why not try it? About six months after I had told my work, I am not coming back, he secretly collected what he thought were my best blog posts over the years and put them into a self-published book. Oh my and he God. gave it to me on my That's birthday. That. That's, That's amazing. We that love your husband. Is, I know. Yeah. Pretty special. Shout so out you, to him. Shout I out was to Pam's husband. It was, yeah. And it's like a real book. He had it copy edited. He hired a designer. It looks, you know, some self-published books kind of look self-published. Yes. It looks legit. And it has an ISBN number. He got a forward. Like it's a legit book. It was. I love that. That's amazing. I was shocked. I was so surprised. So that was him being like, that's a nice, you're a writer. That's a nice push. I love yeah, that. That's a good I guy. Love that. Go your husband. By the way, Stephanie's husband, we joke, is our director of PR for the podcast. So he's very <laughs> yeah. encouraging as well. And my husband is our number one listener who gives yeah. us comments, questions, feedback after. Wow. He listens to every episode. He does shout out. Wow. Hats off to this guy. We should have like a separate podcast where these three like awesome husbands like (laughs) shoot the breeze. He'll text me during the day and his comments are quite funny about his opinions of the show. When he he hears Rachel and I are talking, he, he like pops into the room with, with lots of ideas. Yeah. 
So, He's an idea yeah, generator. Yeah, lots of so, lots of ideas. So can you tell us a little bit about your work in writing and some of the various outlets that you now write for? Yeah, um, let's see. Well, yeah, it started out just I was writing like guest posts for Scary Mommy. We interviewed Jill Smokler. And, oh, you yeah, did? So, what yeah. a small world. She's yeah, cool. Yeah. 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 yeah, she's got a podcast now. She yes. Yeah. Yes. So that I remember when I first wrote for Scary Mommy, that felt like, oh my God, this is legit. This is real. And then I'm trying to recall, there's a website that doesn't exist anymore, but I was writing a weekly parenting post for them and they were paying me not well, but they were paying me. It was like steady income. And then I had a couple of other regular gigs and it was like, wow, this is really a thing. And then I got to a point where I was like, but why am I writing about parenting? My kids are getting old enough to where I don't want to air their problems in public. It's not really anyone's business. It's not fair to them. This is just not the niche I want to be in. What I really wanted to do health and fitness writing, but it kind of like mirrored my, to use the overused word journey, it kind of mirrored my actual fitness journey where I had a lot of imposter syndrome trying to do marathons and triathlons and cycling events. I always had a lot of insecurity, like showing up for the first time with a group of like, do I really fit in here? And so with the health and fitness writing too, I was like, Ooh, am I really an expert in this realm? Like can I really call myself a health and fitness journalist? But I hired a business coach, actually somebody I met through, listen to your mother. I hired a coach because I had hired a coach for sports and realized a coach can help you work smarter without necessarily working mm -hmm. harder. And that's exactly how she helped me. I got more strategic. So I started writing some pieces that sort of bridged parenting and sports and then was able to use those clips to sort of level up and be like, look, I can write about sports. I can write about women's fitness. I had written one parenting piece for the Washington Post. And then in the meantime, I had done a few of these like, pieces. Actually, another one for the Washington Post, also for the parenting section. And it was about a professional athlete who was not getting any support. If anything, she was like overtly unsupported by Nike. So that was like a good bridge of parenting and fitness. The turning point was I came across this awesome woman named Bobby Greenberg, who's in her seventies, and she was going to compete at the Ironman world championships. And I thought there's a story here. I got her on the phone. She was willing to do an interview. I was like, I don't know if I can sell this story, but I think I can. So I talked to her for like an hour. I thought this is really fascinating. This is somebody who didn't learn to swim until her fifties. There aren't very many women at the world championship level in their seventies. And she's one of them. She's incredible and such a sweet person. And I pitched this story all over the place. Nobody wanted it. And finally, I was like, I'm going to try the inspired life section at the Washington Post. I hadn't pitched them in the first place because I'd already written for them. And I thought this is a cool opportunity to break into something new. But when they ultimately took it, I don't know if it went viral per se, but it got a lot of reach. People really liked it. It was just like an inspiring human interest story. About six or eight weeks later, I got a random email from the editor of the Washington Post's wellness section. I'd never worked with her. I'd never even pitched her. And she said, would you like to write for me regularly about health and fitness? I'm looking for a writer who has a personal interest in health and fitness too. And I think you'd be a good person. And I was like, Am I getting punked? That's what I thought. Because I, <laughs> right. That's amazing. That's like the dream email. I right? love it. I, yeah, yeah. So then that really was a turning point when you have written for the Washington Post and you tell other outlets, hey, I've got this yeah. on my resume. People, you know, automatically they're like, oh, then you're legit. So that opened a lot of doors and it was super fun. I got to dive into all kinds of health and fitness topics and 
almost any expert that you email them and you're like, Hey, I'm working on something for the Washington post. Can I interview you? They're almost always immediately. Yeah. So I've talked to some really cool people. And speaking of talking to cool people, um, well, we're talking to a cool person, but um, our listeners can't see that you have the fancy microphone, which is a tip off that you also are a podcast host. And so you are talking with people on Real Fit, which is your podcast. So tell us about what that's been like and who you've been talking to and what's ahead for that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's been so much fun. That was another thing that like, I don't know if I had imposter syndrome per se, but I thought about it for a long time before I got going on it. I was ready before I thought I was ready right in like spring of 2020. I was like ready to get going on it. And then I was like, oh my God, there's no way I can start a podcast with my kids at home and blah, blah, blah. And then realized this pandemic, it's, this is not going to be a quick thing. This is how we live now. Either I'm going to start the podcast or I'm not. I've got to figure out a way. And I knew it was something I wanted to do. So real fit. I interview women athletes about body image, confidence, this struggle with feeling like we're enough, which I think most women deal with in some capacity. And really digging into the mental aspects of sport and talking with women about how do you balance the drive to love yourself and to give yourself compassion with the drive to also have goals and ambitions and try to be a better athlete and a better human. Oh, once in a while, I throw in like a solo episode where I discuss intuitive eating and other aspects. Intuitive eating and self-compassion have a lot of overlap. That's been amazing. Like it's a ton of work, as I know you know, but it really fills my cup. And whenever I get away from it, like say it's been like six weeks since I've done a new interview and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I have the energy for that anymore. I kind of lost momentum. As soon as I interview somebody and I start digging in, I'm like, oh yeah, this is why I do this. It's just so much fun to get to talk to people that I would never normally get to speak with. It is energizing, isn't it? We totally yeah. get that yeah, same we, feeling. We to- yep. If we haven't interviewed somebody for a while, well, then we get back on. We're like, that was the best. That was the right. best part of our day. We totally get Truly. it. Truly. So you wear so many hats. How do you do this all? Plus, how do you have time to train for these amazing marathons and triathlons? And why is the Ironman called the Ironman? Should we call the Ironman? <laughs> I, I agree. Um, where to begin? I'll start with the Iron Man thing because that's an easy one. I don't know why they call it the Iron Man. I just right. know it, they started it in the 70s. And uh, okay. I don't even Got I don't it. There you go. <laughs> did the first one. I honestly think the first one might have just been like a group of friends like, yeah, hey, let's do this crazy thing. Okay, so they've got that question out of the way. The harder <laughs> question, how do I? <laughs> yeah, ser- I mean, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. This is not just like a three mile yeah. run. Exactly. No, well, I will say I haven't done an Iron Man since before I had children. Okay. I don't even know how one would commit to it. I know people do with children and podcasts and all the rest of the things. I don't know. I really need about eight hours of sleep every night. So I'm not like some superwoman. I take a smarter approach to training than I used to. Like I try to be more strategic instead of just going out on my bike for four or five or six hours and just taking it slow and just like being out there all day for no reason just to do it. I'm more likely to be like, all right, all I have is three hours. I'm going to do hill repeats or I'm going to do intervals. Or I choose events that aren't stressful to train for. Like I'm doing my first gravel event this year. And I think there's like multiple distances you can choose for this one event. Uh, You can see how laid back I am because I can't even remember which one I signed up for, like the exact distance, but I think it's 39 miles. And for me, like that's a distance. Like if I just get out on my bike regularly, I know I can do that. There's different seasons for different things. And this for me is a season of, being reasonable and not mm-hmm. overcommitting. 
So, um, yeah. And I'm big on like lists and calendars. I got like a Google calendar. <laughs> I have a, mm-hmm. like a journal with like time slots. I have a whiteboard. I have a lot of systems. Can we compare our we, systems? We, yeah, we, we love systems. Yeah. We'll go deep into the Google we'll go, drive and yeah, the calendar. Yeah, I would love yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. That might it. be an accessory topic, Rachel. Yeah. Yes, that's right? my happy place. I yeah, love so the Google wait, drive. Is a, gra- a gravel ride? Um, is that literally like riding on gravel? Yeah. Gravel. It can be like a, it can be like a fire road or a dirt road. It can be single track, which is like, you know, the skinny trail that only one biker person can fit on at a time. Mm -hmm. That's a little scary. So a gravel bike is a nice happy medium between a mountain bike and a road bike. It looks a lot like a road bike in terms of the geometry and the frame, but the tires are knobby. The geometry is a little different. I'm not so knowledgeable that I know the exact differences. I just know my bike fits me. Like you were saying, it's scary to be around cars. It is. Even as a very experienced road cyclist, you can't control what the cars are going to do. I feel a lot safer on gravel and I get to be more in nature, which is I've seen some things that are literally like four miles from my house or closer that I had no idea were there. I've lived in this city since 2008. So I'm just like, love it. I just got my gravel bike last summer. So I'm enjoying exploring on the gravel bike. That's pretty neat. So I'm the the chief safety officer here at Life Accessories. You wear a helmet all the time. Just Absolutely. Sure. Okay. Good. Oh my god. Great. One time. One time I left the house without a helmet and I felt really weird. I was like, "What's going on? What is missing?" Yeah. I was like, "Oh my god!" I didn't even get like halfway down the street. Turn around. Yes. Always yeah. with a helmet and bright color clothes. I have a little flashy red light on my tail light if it's charged. Usually it is. I have a headlight. Hopefully it's charged. My last helmet was neon green. My current helmet is red, but yeah, I try to be very visible. So back to your original bike, is that bike that you said is hanging in your garage? Do you still get out and ride that bike or is you just can't, you can't part with it? I just can't part with it. I got a new road bike like four years ago. And then I got the gravel bike two years ago. My husband, he's amazing as we've established, but he thinks I have too many bikes and he's wrong. I also have a triathlon bike, which is whatever. And we have an e-bike, which we share. That's like for commuting and stuff. So yes, there are quite a few bikes in the family, but yeah, I cannot part with this bike because I really think it changed my life. I got the bike and it forced me to get out of my comfort zone in so many ways, like literally with the cars. I had a neighbor who I think he saw me coming in and out of the house with my bike. And he was like, hey, you want to go on a ride sometime? And he was much older and very experienced and very comfortable and very patient with me. So he took me on all kinds of rides. He explained to me how to be safe. He told me about some local cycling. I think it was him told me about some local cycling groups that I could meet up with. And I had to constantly get out of my comfort zone and be like, all right, I'm showing up at this group ride. I'm showing up at this other group ride. I showed up on a lot of rides where I was the only woman or one of two or three women. I think there's way more women in cycling now than there were in 2003. You mentioned a few times there were new things in your life, new things you tried and you mentioned imposter syndrome. And I think we're all hard on ourselves. And we think that, you know, we have imposter syndrome. And I think part of that though, is because there's some people like you who are willing to try new things and just dive in. And you, you shared that from the moment you got that first bike that you brought to us and, and just your whole, I'm going to say it, your journey, right. Throughout all the different facets of your career. I relate to the, that concept so well of imposter syndrome, but I also feel like we need a different name for that because you're doing right. You're doing and you're making stuff happen. So, um, it's, it's really interesting to hear about everything that you've accomplished on this road. 
On this right, I like this. I like the synonym for journey. I like it, and you know, I I think you're right. We do need a different word, and I think right. I think growing pains would be accurate. Yeah, Yeah. I like that. Pam, where can our listeners find you and all the cool work that you're doing in your podcast? Well, thank you. They can find me at easiest place is my website. It's Pam Dash or hyphen whatever Pam Dash More dot com, and there you'll find links to all my socials. And when you go there. You can also sign up for my biweekly newsletter. It's called Real Nourished, Reinventing Your Relationship with Food. And in that, I share evidence-based insights on healing your relationship with food, giving up dieting, having a new mindset, because that's really what intuitive eating is. It's like relearning. It's not a lot about the food. It's a lot about your mind. And the Real Fit podcast is something you can listen to anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Great having you on today, Pam. Thank you for spending part of your day with us. And we appreciate hearing your story. Thank you. What an excellent way to start, not just the day, but the week. This for I guess listeners probably don't know we're recording early on a Monday morning. This is fantastic. Thank you. I'm going to finish my coffee and get out on that hybrid bike. There you go. I love it. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed this episode of Life's Accessories. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and get in touch. Thanks for tuning in. 